He allowed himself to be swayed by his conviction that human beings are not born once and for all on the day their mothers give birth to them, but that life obliges them over and over again to give birth to themselves. Gabriel Garcia Marquez Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank you all for joining me this week. I really appreciate it. Uh, to those of you here in the U.S. and other places that may celebrate uh, Thanksgiving, uh, thank you uh, for joining me, and I hope you had a good holiday. And for everyone else, um, I hope your week was at least nice and productive and fun and safe and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and if I haven't said it or made it clear, I do uh, thank each and every one of you for listening whenever you can, uh, as uh, often as you do. Um, really, uh, really pleased with the growth of the podcast uh, this year, especially and just overall. So, thank you all again. Now, uh, on to the meat of this week's episode. We're moving out of Mesoamerica and North America to enter South America. And this should take two to three episodes, possibly four. And after that, uh, we will be having a few supplemental episodes to go over new uh, crops, animals, metallurgy, urbanization, and maybe another topic or two before we truly start Season 4, uh, which will cover 6,000 to 4,000 B.C. Uh, so we have that to look forward to. Uh, but for now, let's go ahead and get on to this week's topic. Now, uh, South America's op- occupation is debated, uh, but the oldest universally accepted evidence that has been found of Homo sapiens dates to around 13,000 to 11,000 BC. Uh, Now, I say universally accepted. There are people who claim that there are older sites, but they don't not acknowledge that the sites that most people recognize as being the oldest um, are, in fact, you know, actual Homo sapiens sites. Um, and I talked about a couple of the potentially older sites last season. Uh, but again, anything older is very, again, highly debated. And judging by the amount of potential evidence, um, any humans moving into this continent would be doing so in extremely low numbers. And based on like the gaps between these you know, debated earlier sites... And when people actually, you know, more regular, more recent dates show up, it's very possible that anyone moving in earlier may not have survived. They, it's possible they could have died out before, uh, I guess, the permanent waves of Homo sapiens moved in. Uh, but that being said, I would not personally be surprised if we found earlier evidence than 13,000 BC, uh, BCE. Um, just because, again, I think North America was occupied a little bit earlier. Um, but, again, it may have been in very small numbers, or it may have something to do with how migration into South America happened, and that might be why there is not as much evidence. And I'm going to go ahead and go... Um, excuse me. Uh, go ahead and dive into that, uh, which is the next debated topic about South America. And that is, how did people arrive? Uh, we have the wind. Now we have the how. Uh, So during the period of time when the Clovis first hypothesis 
was prominent. It was very widely thought that the first humans entering South America came through the eastern portion of Mexico and followed along the Atlantic coastline and then spreading along uh, the um, Pacific and Atlantic coast, respectively, once they got past um, the Darien Gap into uh, South America. So they entered into that little uh, land bridge the isthmus there and then they just split and then they occupied the coastlines and then uh, began to move into the interiors from there um now if you've been listening regularly you can probably guess that this theory doesn't work because there are older sites than the clovis culture and that they can be dated to before the ice sheet would have let people through um, the area that the clovis migration would have had to have happened so they may have taken that Clovis route that was originally proposed, but it could have been older. But no, wait, ice sheets in the way. doesn't work. So um, now uh, newer theories based on DNA surveys, surveys um, and of course sites that can be definitively dated. And uh, the dismissal of the Clovis first theory has led to a new kind of overarching uh, theory of how South America was populated. Instead of coming through the Great Plains and eastern Mexico and the Yucatan along the Atlantic coast, they instead followed the Pacific coast, uh, leapfrogging from site to site along the Pacific as resources and populations dictated. Uh, then when they got to the northwest of South America, most humans occupied this coastline with a... Um, smaller contingent kind of moving eastward uh, once you were well past the Darien Gap and these people would uh, continue to move east into the interior where they would spread out and get through uh, the mountain passes of uh, what is now modern day Colombia, Venezuela and then moving um, and occupying you know the interior of other uh, what are now modern day countries. While you have those original groups from the Pacific, uh, they stay along the coast. Uh, so you kind of have this split uh, after this early arrival uh, via the Pacific kind of uh, uh, seaways. Now, um, of course, eventually you would have a um, later period where these two branches would meet people coming in from that Atlantic route mentioned earlier. Um, you know, later waves of migrants are going to continue to move uh, and they'll meet up with these more established uh, South American communities and uh, peoples uh, where, you know, you would have um, you know, your standard, uh, what standard interactions that you would expect between you know, vast, you know, different human groups, trade, conflict, intermarriage, etc. Now, there are some problems with this theory, and if you remember the first couple of episodes of North America this season, you can probably guess what the main issue is. That is the sea, or rather the sea level. Uh, it was lower prior to the end of the Younger Dryas, and there are probably a number of sites that were sunk beneath the waves. Of course, by the start of this season, uh, the coast is probably fairly close to what it is today. And by the end of this season, so 6000 BC, uh, it definitely is 
close. Now, uh, one of South America's defining features is the Andes Mountains. These are the longest single mountain change in the world. Almost uh, 9,000 kilometers, which I think is like 5,600 miles. Or not, yeah, 5,600 miles, excuse me. Now, I'm going to go ahead and do a little etymology on these. Now, the exact origin of the name is disputed, but both of the main theories I have read say that the Spanish adopted the word from one of the languages in the Quechuan families, uh, probably the Inklin uh, version of Quechuan. Excuse me. Um, now, they have may have adopted the Incan term Antisuyu, uh, which is a combination of Anti and Suyu, Anti means east, Suyu means quadrant or quarter. This meant uh, the territory the Incans claimed east of the mountains. Uh, now, the various people living there, uh, the Incans grouped together as, as the Anti, uh, which in that context, it means it literally means Easterner when referring to uh, people. Another potential source of the name is the Quechuan word andi, A-N-D-I, as opposed to anti, which is A-N-T-I. And this means high crest. Um, Both make sense in terms of, you know, the origin of the name. Uh, Hence why there's a debate. Um, Now, obviously, you would assume... High crest, mountains, that's probably the likely one. But in terms of um, uh, what's on the other side of the mountain, that makes sense too. So it, it is it is kind of hard to uh, kind of come down one way or the other. Now, uh, the Andes themselves are t- typically divided into three subregions. The northern, central, and southern regions. This week we're mainly going to focus on the southern and central sections, as this is where we have found the oldest conclusively dated artifacts on the continent, and these have been in or near sites that are active during our current season. Now, uh, travel across these mountains is possible, and it will be done, but there are a number of places in the ranges that make good places for humans to live, or at least... Uh, not so difficult as a place to live that it makes it, um, I guess, well, that's a bad way to phrase it. It may not be the easiest place in the world to live, especially with the elevation, but it does have some benefits, and we'll talk about some of those going forward. Um, And with the rising sea levels living along the very narrow coast of uh, western South America, may not have been very viable, and it may have even been terrifying. You know, this could be one of those uh, flood myth origins that we talk about occasionally. Excuse me. Now, um, there are a number of river valleys and high plateaus that have developed large freshwater ponds and lakes. Uh, Lake Titicaca in modern Peru and Bolivia is the largest of these, and indeed it is the largest lake in South America. Uh, And this is one of those areas I talked about that makes a decent home or gathering point for uh, Homo sapiens. 
Uh, and there is a site uh, that I want to talk about first. Uh, this site is known as Willamaya Paja, and that is in Peru, not far to the southeast of Lake Titicaca. At that site were found a number of individuals. I think it was six individuals, uh, and two of them were, I think, fully articulated. Well, not fully articulated, but were like mostly intact. I think they found pretty much every bone uh, that you would expect uh, to find in a human skeleton. Now, this site is important for a number of reasons. Uh, it is the oldest uh, site with... Uh, evidence of uh, humans living along Lake Titicaca. So uh, it kind of offers a lot of uh, good information on what the earliest humans to live in this very um, high altitude, cold environment um, was like and what they had to do to make it. Uh, and it, it's not a huge site. It's, uh, it's about one and a half hex, uh, hectares which is uh, around, I think, 1,500 square meters, give or take. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, not, it's not massive, but, you know, it does, uh, it does show, again, a small group, what you might expect from a, you know, um, a smaller band of hunter-gatherers. Um, you know, again, we've talked about how, you know, prior to the rise of large-scale uh, agriculture, um, most mobile hunter-gatherer groups, typically you're looking between, you know, maybe 10 to 30, you know, individuals uh, altogether. And then, of course, during certain periods of time, they would probably meet up with other similarly sized groups that spoke the same language or that were somehow related, uh, you know, to kind of uh, survive during leaner months. Uh, and, of course, set up uh, new um, uh, ties, uh, either through marriage or... Um, you know, just strengthening of bonds through some type of ceremony or anything like that. Um, now, uh, another important reason for this is that uh, two of the full individuals they have found um, are very interesting in relation to one of the things I talked about last week, uh, about how... Um, at least appears to be in the Americas, uh, women and men did not have the exact same type of division of labor that you see in other uh, hunter-gatherer societies, or at least most commonly in other hunter-gatherer societies. Uh, there was a young woman, uh, she was in her late teens, early 20s, uh, and they found her buried, and she had a you know, a toolkit filled with uh, a number of um, stones, all, you know, most, uh, she had a number of spear or arrowheads. Uh, I think, well, I think they're technically all considered uh, spear spearheads. Um, and then uh, she had some larger choppers, a couple maybe of what may have been like rough uh, scrapers, knives, you know, things like that. And a couple of stones that would have been useful for um, breaking up uh, rocks to make more um, arrowheads and things like that. Um, so this is, again, one of those places I talked about, you know, where you where you see this kind of 
uh, outlier uh, between American cultures and cultures in the old world. Again, usually what you would see. Um, now, I should point out that there are people who disagree with this interpretation. Uh, some say that this uh, woman may have been, um, you know, she may have been a very skilled craftsperson, uh, that she may have been very good at making tools. There's no evidence to suggest that she was using them for hunting. Um, you know, a lot of the things that she have would be useful for things aside from hunting. Again, cleaning uh cleaning kills, uh, creating leathers, uh, cutting down, um, or harvesting different types of wild plants. Uh, she could have been a hunter's daughter, something along those lines, or hunter's wife, uh, things like that. Um, so it is not universally accepted that she was, uh, a hunter. Um, I tend to think that, you know, with this small group, and her being young, and it doesn't appear that she's uh, given birth, I don't believe. Uh, sometimes I know that's hard to tell just from the skeleton, uh, especially after you, you know, after a period of time, it's, you know, with the way the bones and stuff degradate, it's, it's really hard to tell that. Um, but I, I think it probably is likely that she may have been a hunter. Uh, and people sometimes question, you know, if they would have been, um, able to kind of keep up physically with the men because she is I think a little bit more uh, diminutive than the man that they found at the site however it's very important to remember that um, this is past the age of the megafauna she's not running down you know full-scale mammoths or things like that um, and also it's another thing important to remember uh, the atlatl the spear thrower. This is kind of um, one of the big known tools that we know that hunters are using in uh, the Americas. And the atlatl, it allows you to, you know, very easily increase your range of your thrown spear. And it's not necessarily the hardest thing in the world to master. Um, you could probably become extremely proficient in it, uh, you know, with just a year or two of training. So, uh, it's very possible that she could have been, uh, you know, a hunter for at least a year or two before she passed. Um, so, again, it's up for debate. It's not 100% agreed on, but most sources I've read tend to agree that she was probably a hunter. Now, there was also a male uh, that was made a... You know, that was found in mostly intact condition, much like the female. Uh, she, or excuse me, he uh, was a little bit older. Uh, he was between uh, mid-20s to early 30s. Uh, and like uh, the woman, he did have some artifacts, not quite as many, but he did have a couple of um, uh, projectile points as well as a knife. Uh, so, you know, he, he was armed as well. I believe both were buried on their sides facing east where the sun rises. Um, whether that was intentional uh, or not, we, we're not sure. But I think most people assume that uh, the way their people are buried very deliberately. Um, uh, yes, it, it is assumed that that was done on purpose. Uh, now, they were not buried in the same grave. However, they were very close to one another. 
um, I think just a few, um, just a few uh, kind of uh, feet from each other. Um, and again, there were some other remains that were a little bit um, less wet, less well preserved, scattered, uh, and these were not very deep burials. They were only. Um, only a couple of feet down, not even, not a full six feet. Um, if you'd like to read about these in a lot more detail, um, you can read the article on Science Advances uh, by Haas et al. Uh, it's from, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, November 4th, 2020. Uh, it's called, entitled Female Hunters of the Early Americas. Uh, that now, as you can guess from the title, they don't quite go through as much detail on the male figure, uh, but um, it also has some mentions of some er earlier or some other sites around the same time in different parts of the Americas um, where female skeletons have been fail uh, found with uh, a mix of tools. Um, uh, now, also uh, of importance, uh, these uh, people have been named. Uh, the woman has been called Wara Wara, and the male has been called uh, Fakshi, uh, and they are they were able to do some DNA tests on these individuals. Uh, they lived their entire life in the Andes. Uh, this can be tell you know done by like a isotope testing of their remains. You can kind of see um, what they're eating, where, uh, what what type of meals they were having. Uh, that kind of thing. You can see if they're eating stuff that is local to the area or if they're, you know, maybe moved into the region. Uh, it appears that both lived their entire lives in the Andes Highlands. And um, they are most closely related to the uh, modern Aymara people. Now, um, the Aymara are a very interesting group, and I'll be talking about them in the future. Uh, but, uh, whether or not that they consider themselves Aymara at this early period, probably probably not. There is evidence for other groups that would have a small bit of shared ancestry, uh, but it's very clear that uh, these the Aymara share the most in common with these individuals, and it's not far from like Aymara. Um, I guess the the primary concentration of the Aymara and population uh, in the modern day um, so you know there they were you know mobile hunter-gatherers and they probably stayed within the Andes Highlands for for pretty much all of history now when they developed that identity uh, who's to say but um uh, this is definitely a one of the prime uh, ancestor groups of the Aymara there are others I'm sure um, but uh, no one is as closely related to them as, uh, or no one is closely related to the remains as the modern Aymara people. Uh, Wara, excuse me, Wara, Wara means star, and uh, Fashi means um, moon in the Aymara language. Uh, now, in terms of, um, in terms of diet, these people had, um, they were hunting uh, vacuna, which is like the ancestor, or the probable ancestor of the um, the modern um, 
llama. And there's some uh, other camelids because llamas are technically camelids. They're related to, to camels. Um, that they were also hunting, though in much smaller numbers. And of course, there was some deer. Uh, very small amount of bird bones, but that might be just because bird bones tend to be smaller and they're hollow, so they can very easily kind of um, get lost and crushed, uh, you know, under kind of impact uh, and things like that. So not a necessarily the saying that they didn't eat a lot of birds, but uh, there's a lot less evidence for it. Uh, and of course, uh, an, one of the primary factors for uh, hunting vacuna would not just be for meat. Uh, their wool, very important, would definitely help them to survive in the uh, in the Andes Highlands. Um, and uh, it's not known if Warawara and Fakshi were living at the same time. It's very possible they were. Uh, they, at least according to radiocarbon dating, it's possible. Uh, they're both dated between uh, 7,000 and uh, 6,700 BC, BCE in terms of when they were buried. So it's very possible that they um, that they were alive at the same time. I don't think they were related, though, at least according to the DNA tests, at least not directly. Uh, I'm sure that you know they came out that they were cousins of some type. Um, now, as for uh, the site itself, uh, Willamaya Patja, uh, it, it is occupied for, um, again, I think around 6,000 BC is the latest. Uh, so it's not in use necessarily for a long time, but it is in use for uh, at least the period that we've been discussing for this season. Uh, now... Um, Moving a little bit further south, uh, there is another site in southern Peru. Um, well, it's not necessarily one site. It's a number of locations um, all along what is now modern-day southern Peru, where they have found, uh, through genetic testing, the ancestors of uh, the potato, or the modern potato, or, I guess, modern potatoes. There are a number of of crop varieties of potatoes, you know, just like small differences. Uh, these are tubers, and uh, from what we found, the wild varieties all came from, um, or the, excuse me, the modern domesticated varieties all came from wild varieties in this region. And uh, the domestication at least from you know backdating genetic tests and when mutations occur and all that kind of stuff, it's probably happening right around 7,000 uh, BC BCE. Uh, and of course, this is uh, you know uh, potatoes are a massively important crop historically, not just for the Americas. It becomes like a big food security crop uh, everywhere in the world uh, later, and is even used obviously today. Um, so that is beginning to happen here and now in the um, in South America in the Andes Highlands. Uh, oh, also, I did a little bit of more research, diving into some things this week uh, based on uh, some reader feedback, and uh, it does appear that chilies 
were also being cultivated in uh, what is now modern-day Bolivia, uh, about 7,500 BCE. Uh, and this is independent of the Mexican domestication of chilies, which is happening um, right around 6,000 BCE, a little bit after. Uh, so this appears to be, at least based on current DNA studies and evidence, does appear to be happening uh, independent of each other. So uh, these are, you know, two different cultures developing uh, the same uh, usage of, uh, of, of crops, so just in two different locations, different species forming, of course, uh, modern or different uh, domesticated varieties later. So uh, this is not something that's strictly spread uh, from the south or from the north to the south. Uh, this is something that was happening at the same time. Uh, now, beans are still being developed independently uh, of Mexico, and that is something that does spread from the north to the south, but then, of course, you have the potato moving north as well. Um, so uh, that is something to keep in mind. Um, so, uh, of course, uh, you know, chili's very uh, popular today, especially uh, these days there are all types of you know, new varieties being bred all the time worldwide. So uh, not quite as widespread, of course, as the potato, but still, you know, pretty important. Uh, definitely gives uh, food some spice uh, on occasion. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So uh, we have those three pieces of information. Sorry, I'm just going through my notes here. Uh, I did want to get to a couple of other um, things that are going on. Uh, there are people in Chile, uh, however, uh, modern Chile, I should say, um, and from what I can tell, they don't get too far um, south. Uh, they, I, I believe, uh, firm dating uh, for this time, um, excuse me, sorry, I did not mean to hit the microphone there. Um, uh, I don't believe they get uh, too far into what is the south of the country today. Um, I think uh, anything, they're definitely not any settlements as far as I can tell, uh, south of modern day Santiago. In fact, they may not have even been as far south as Santiago, um, from what I can see just based on the map of known sites. So um, just keep that in mind. And then. Um, of course, that's not a huge surprise. Uh, there are a number of different groups in Chile today. However, they're not the most uh, numerous uh, in terms of populations in those groups. But there are, Chile is easily to kind of, uh, there's a lot of very easily isolated settlements if they, if they want to be, uh, as long as they, of course, have enough food. Also, I don't, I'm not aware of any along, or any sites along or across the Argentinian border with Chile, at least these days, um, or at least at this time frame. So that's another thing. Uh, now, uh, Peru, Bolivia, there are actually a few different um, cultures that can be dated to this time, or at least um, tool, tool complexes uh, might be the better way to think of it. Uh, there are, from what I could tell, uh, three primary kind of uh, tool cultures uh, and they're all kind of divided 
geographically, and they all there is some overlap between them, uh, but then there are some that are you know there's they're just kind of their own thing. Uh, they just lasted for a, a smaller period of time. Um, <clears throat> one of those is the uh, Pajan culture. Uh, and this is um, actually ending right kind of as our current um, current season is starting. Uh, they have very simple uh, points on their on their uh, projectiles. Um, they're just a triangle. That's a, just a simple triangle. Uh, they tend to be larger. Um, and this was a this was an environment that was very arid. There's not a lot of rain, so they were basically very opportunistic in terms of what they were hunting. Uh, they would eat anything and everything uh, if it was edible. Uh, they would hunt rodents, lizards, snails, all that kind of stuff. Now we are probably missing a number of their sites again due to the rise of the sea levels. Um, Excuse me, sorry, I was reading some more of my notes on them. Um, now, they do have development over a period of time. Uh, of course, as they're specializing their tools, uh, you begin to see them use, have, um, excuse me, have uh, more and more um, microblades. Like, they're, they're getting slowly and slower, uh, smaller, slower. The blades are becoming smaller and smaller over time. Excuse me. Sorry. That was a... I do not know why I could not um, get that out. Um, but again, they they are disappearing at this point. Uh, and they, they seem to have a very limited tool set. Uh, not much more aside from weapons. They really don't have any type of... Um, any other cultural artifacts. At least that I could find mentioned in the literature. Um, they have found some remains tied to these. Uh, they have a teenager and a woman who was about 25 years old. And I don't believe they were able to determine the sex of the teenager. Uh, too young. They hadn't gone through puberty yet, so it's hard to, hard to tell. Uh, but they, this is uh, the oldest human remains in Peru belong to this culture. Um, and it's very possible that they may have been the ancestors of the people uh, at um, uh, excuse me at uh, Willamaya Paja. Um, now the other um, the other cultures uh, that uh, I want to talk about. Uh, this is the. Um, Lake uh, Laracoco culture. Uh, this is a very long-lasting culture. It's broken into three different um, time periods. Uh, this is centered around Laracocha Lake, which is in, um, uh, I guess, central Peru. Uh, it's to the north, uh, northwest of Lake Titicaca by quite quite a distance. Uh, and it is the source of um, the um, uh, Maranon River, uh, which is one of the headwaters of the Amazon. Uh, so 
you know, this is... It's one of the... Sorry, got some fire trucks coming. If it's too loud, I'm going to... Or too long, I'm going to cut that out. But yeah, so this uh, this river will, of course, cut through the Andes and move into the east into what is now modern uh, Brazil, eventually. Um, now, again, this is very long-lasting culture. Uh, it lasts from about 10,000 B.C. to about 2,500 B.C. Uh, the period we're in now... Uh, 8,000 to 6,000 is known as the Laracocha One period, uh, and this is one of the um, pre-ceramic Andean uh, groups. There are a number of these, which again we've already talked about a couple of those, um, but it, again it's very similar to like the pre-pottery Neolithic A and B of the Middle East. So there are a number of different cultures. Uh, you know, relatively close by, but due to the environment and the geography, uh, they may have been a little bit more isolated than some of the uh, groups in the uh, Middle East that we've talked about. Um, another uh, another archaeological kind of tool culture is the Am Amotape uh, complex, uh, and this lasts from about nine thousand to seven thousand one hundred. And um, this is a coastal group. Uh, they're not up in the mountains. Um, and they were, uh, you know, in addition to um, hunting and gathering animals, they also were, you know, fishers and things like that. I believe they lived uh, near mangrove swamps, and they would also collect a lot of shellfish. Also, they used... Um, uh, uh, Calcedony tools, uh, which is a type of, um, it's kind of a quartz, uh, so their their tools are very, a um, little bit different from your standard stone that you're finding in a lot of other places. Uh, they also just use standard quartzite too, so they were, they were kind of uh, unique in that aspect of their cultures. Um, and again, all of these are part of the Andean pre-ceramic. Uh, as you can guess, there's, there's no uh, ceramics at this point in time they're of course uh, weaving and um, creating a you know carriers from leathers uh, gourds that kind of thing uh, which they're beginning to domesticate probably in this region as well but yeah so that is kind of um, the central and southern Andes mountains um, now next week we'll be back we'll talk about uh, kind of the northern Andes, and we'll kind of also go over what is now kind of uh, northern uh, South America, uh, places like Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, um, and then a couple of those others as well. And then we'll probably move down into um, the Amazon basin and talk about some sites there. Um, so at least, I think at least two more episodes here in South America, and then we'll finish up. But yeah, uh, I really like this episode. I feel like we got a good bit covered. Of course, if you have any questions or feedback or constructive criticism, please do not hesitate to let me know. Uh, you can reach me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can uh, contact me via direct message on Twitter slash X. Um, I will, you know, I'm going to try to include some photographs um this week when I uh, post the links 
there to the um, to this week's episode. I usually do that on Wednesdays if you're not following there. Uh, I sometimes try to include photos of things I'm talking about. Uh, so I can include the toolkit they found with Wara Wara, the female um, uh, around Lake Titicaca. I'm going to include her toolkit um, in uh, kind of the kind of one of the uh, pictures attached to the episode links. So look forward to that. Uh, you, of course, can also comment on any of my YouTube videos. Uh, I'm live streaming there most days during the week. I uh, haven't been too active this past week due, of course, to me traveling for uh, Thanksgiving. Don't really have the setup for that at um, my family's. Uh, but yeah, you can uh, you can get a hold of me at all those places. So uh, thank you all for um, joining me. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed. I hope you will be back next week. And uh, yeah, be sure to like, subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. Wherever you're listening to me, uh, share me with a friend, family, all that kind of good stuff. Thank you all. I hope you have a good rest of your week. Goodbye.